Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. If you are new to Christchurch, um, firstly, welcome. It is great to have you here with us. You are joining us kind of almost to the end of a series that we've been doing for the last few months uh, called The Prince of Peace. And we have been looking together at what it means, when the Bible, what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And kind of what the peace that he came to bring, kind of how that affects us, what that means in our daily life. Uh, and over the last couple of months, we've seen that the peace that Jesus has made possible is kind of uh, one of those aspects, and maybe the most important one, is a peace between us and God. Um, and as Andy was talking about last week, knowing that you are at peace with God is the most incredible thing. So just to say up front, if you are here this morning and you wouldn't say that you know peace between you and God for whatever reason, we would love to chat to you about that. Knowing that God loves you and not just loves you, but actually likes you, that he is for you, that he wants to be part of your life, will change everything. Knowing that there's kind of no barrier between you and God, that's the most incredible thing. And we would love to help you explore that if you can't say that you kind of understand what that means personally. Um, so you can either come and talk to anyone you've seen up the front this morning, talk to one of the prayer team later on, or just to say that um, we have got an alpha course running at the moment um, in central London. I'm going to be there this Wednesday, and this Wednesday we are looking at why did Jesus die? And that's kind of like, how did this piece come about? And so you don't have to sign up for the whole course. If you just want to come along to this one evening, you are more than welcome. Again, chat to someone from the welcome team or go on to ChristchurchLondon.org alpha. And we are meeting in Covent Garden and we would love to see you there. So yeah, we've looked at how Jesus came to bring peace between us and God. But then the scriptures also teach that Jesus, kind of part of him bringing peace to earth, is making peace between us possible as well. And as we've talked about before, the word peace that we translate in our Bible, uh, in the New Testament, that is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom means so much more than just kind of peace. It means wholeness, completeness, contentment, prosperity, kind of this total well-being, both personally and communally. Shalom paints this picture of people living with God and with one another and with the whole of creation just as God intended, with everything in its right place, everything as it should be. And the mission of Jesus was and is to restore shalom, to restore peace to the world. Because you don't need me to tell you that the world we live in is kind of very far from that idyllic idea of peace. And the incredible thing is that when Jesus... uh, What he began on earth in his kind of earthy ministry, what he made possible through his death and resurrection, what he will one day bring to completion when he returns, kind of this idea of renewing peace to the earth, that is what he is still continuing to do through us. We get to be kind of players in this. And so for those of us who want to follow Jesus, to kind of live according to his teachings, according to his example in relationship with him, then working for peace, working for shalom, for wholeness in the parts of the world that we inhabit, well, that's pretty much almost the entirety of the job description. Like, that is what we are called to do. And not just in kind of some obligation or kind of responsibility, but actually as a pathway to blessing. So Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mount, his most famous teaching recorded in Matthew 5, he said, blessed are the peacemakers. And the word, the Aramaic word there that we translate as blessed, it means to be enriched, to be happy, to be fortunate, delighted, blissful, content. And so Jesus is saying that working for peace, 
working to restore shalom results in blessing and happiness and enrichment and all the other good stuff, both for us and for our communities. And I'm sure I guess that kind of as an abstract principle, we're probably all on board with that, right? I guess there's no one here thinking, no, I think Jesus got this one wrong. Like peace, working for peace, that, how can that be a good thing? So we're all on board with it. The real question is how? Like how do we do this? How do I do that? What does it look like for my life to be a peacemaker and a shalom restorer? What is Jesus calling me to do? And I think there are obviously loads of different ways that we could kind of come at this. Um, But in trying to bring this idea of peacemaking from this kind of abstract good thing into a somewhat kind of more concrete, tangible thing, I want to shift our kind of attention today away from kind of bringing global peace, which we all need that we need, but that's a huge thing. We're not going to talk about that today. And kind of focus it all the way down to the local, to our community. What does it mean to bring peace, to be peacemakers in our local community? And by community there, I mean geographical community. The physical place where we live, the people that we live amongst. Today I want us to think about how we become those who work to restore shalom in our neighborhoods and between our neighbors. Because I think as I read the scriptures, I see that this is where peace between us begins. It's obviously not where it ends. It should go on out into the world. But this is the foundation, I think, of a society at peace, is a neighborhood at peace. Love for our neighbor is the foundation which everything else is built upon. One of the most famous stories that Jesus told is all about this type of neighbor love. And he tells that story in response to a question from a religious scholar, an expert in the law of God. And so this guy comes to Jesus, and uh, it's, we're told it's, kind of te- it's a kind of test. He's wanting to test him. And he asks Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law of God? Which is the greatest? And his intention isn't to learn anything. He's not coming kind of to, for Jesus to teach him something. He's coming to try and trip him up. He wants him to say something that he can use against him. And in Matthew's account of this, Jesus replies, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. But then he continues. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Like just like Jesus, he won't be boxed in. Like the guy asks him for the one greatest commandment. And he says, well, actually, there's two. You can't have one, you can't do one without doing the other. Yes, we are called to love God with our whole being, our heart, our soul, our mind. Um, Other gospel accounts say our strength as well. But in order to do that, and actually as a, a way of doing that, we are also to love like God loves. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus is making it very clear here that devotion to God includes devotion to other people. And then Luke's account adds up a follow-up exchange. The man wanting to justify himself asks Jesus, okay, so who is my neighbor? You say I have to love my neighbor as myself. Who exactly is my neighbor? And to answer him, Jesus does what he often does, and he tells a story, the most probably famous story, apart from the prodigal son that he tells, the story of the good Samaritan. And I'm sure many of us are very familiar with this. 
So Jesus' story starts with a man traveling from Jericho, high up in the mountains, all the, uh, sorry, in Jerusalem, high up in the mountains, all the way down to Jericho at sea level. And this is kind of like a windy, mountainous path. It is incredibly dangerous, like incredibly open to ambushes. Uh, it was so dangerous it became known as the Bloody Pass. So like you were risking your life going down here. And lo and behold, the man who was traveling from Jericho, so Jerusalem to Jericho, is attacked by robbers. They strip him of the only valuables he is carrying, which is his clothes. They beat him, and then they go on their way. And as he's lying there bleeding and unconscious and just a few hours away of death from exposure, first one and then a second religious leader come down the path. And these are people known to be fully devoted to God, kind of got commandment down, uh, commandment one down. They're fully devoted to God. But they both see the man in the distance lying there, and you know the story, they cross over to the other side of the road and they pass on without stopping. And then Jesus has a Samaritan enter the scene. Now the Samaritans and the Israelites were and had been enemies for centuries. They hated one another. Jews looked down on Samaritans as completely second-class citizens. They didn't have much to do with each other. When they did, there was a lot of enmity between them. But Jesus' Samaritan is so moved with compassion for the injured man that he stops And he gets down off his donkey, and Jesus says he stoops down low, gets out of his high position, stoops down low to where the man is on the ground. And he lifts him up, and he bandages his wounds, and he puts him on his donkey, and he walks him out of there to the nearest inn. And he puts him there, and he says to the innkeeper, look, have all my money, have as much as you need to look after this guy. And when I come back, if you need any more, I will pay it, don't worry. Which is Obviously, an incredible act of love and generosity, but also an incredible act of courage. So when Martin Luther King um, speaks, spoke about this passage, he actually spoke about it uh, the night before he was assassinated. This is the last speech he ever gave. He mentions this parable. Um, and he was assassinated as someone who was trying to bring peace between his neighbors, between black neighbors and white neighbors. And he says maybe the defining difference between the religious leaders and the Samaritan was that the religious leaders weren't willing to help because, actually, it was too dangerous. So it wasn't so much about a love and compassion. It was a self-preservation thing. King suggested that maybe they took one look at this man who'd obviously been violently robbed, and they thought, are they still around? Could this happen to me? Their question was, if I stop to help, what's going to happen to me in this situation? And they thought, well, it's a likely chance they could still be here. And so I won't help, I just keep on going. But King says the question in the Samaritan's mind was obviously, what will happen to him if I don't stop? He thinks, well, this guy's going to die. And even if that means risking my life, I will stop and I will help him. So Jesus gets to the end of this story where he's laid out this incredible vision for what neighborly love looks like, where he's made this hated Samaritan kind of the hero of the story, the model of that kind of courageous and compassionate love. And he turns to the religious scholar and he says, so now tell me, friend, which of these three men who saw the wounded man proved to be a true neighbor? Which do you think? And the religious scholar can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So just kind of reluctantly concedes Sure, the one who had mercy on him, that was the neighbor. And Jesus says to him, well then, if you really want to follow the law, then love your neighbor as yourself like this guy does. Go and do likewise. See, the religious scholar was asking Jesus to define who exactly God was talking about when God says we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I think he was probably kind of hoping that Jesus was going to sum up what his assessment of the situation was, which is 
people just like him. I'm sure that he was expecting Jesus to say, oh, just your fellow Israelites. Obviously just your fellow Israelites. That's all we're talking about here. You know, the people who are just like you, part of your religion, that's who God means when he says love your neighbor. It doesn't mean the people who aren't like you, just the people who are. But Jesus doesn't say that. By adding in the Samaritan a hated outsider as the model of neighborly love, he is making the point that the religious scholar's concept of neighbor is far too narrow. That when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, what he means is, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, your neighbor, your actual physical neighbor. It doesn't matter where they are from, doesn't matter their background, doesn't matter if you get on with them or not, doesn't matter if you share your faith with them, doesn't even matter if they are your enemy. If they are your neighbor, if you find yourself living in the same place as them, then you are to love them with compassion and with courage. Because that's just how God loves us. Now I know that this parable is probably very familiar to many of us. But I do think when it comes to loving our neighbours, this idea, the, the second commandment, love our neighbours as ourselves, I think we can sometimes do what the religious scholar did. The religious scholar looked at his actual neighbours, all the people he lived amongst, and he tried to kind of create this subgroup that he didn't have to love. He wasn't required by law to love. He tried to make the category of neighbor smaller by taking out anyone he didn't feel deserved his love or attention, people he didn't like. And actually, I think our tendency is to go the opposite way, and it's to make the category of neighbor bigger, much bigger, actually almost universal. I think we mistakenly think that Jesus' point in the Good Samaritan is that we are to consider everyone to be our neighbor, that neighbor is kind of a metaphor for anyone in need. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. We expand our category of neighbor to include the whole world. And, you know, when we do that, when everyone is our neighbor, then no one is. We can't love the whole world like that, can we? And so we too, like the religious scholar, start to define this group that we will choose to love. And often, if we're choosing those people, there'll be people like us or people we think deserving of our love, and we kind of exclude other people. The irony is that when we take neighbor as a metaphor, then loving our neighbor doesn't often include the people who live next door to us. Isn't that a bit crazy? Like Jesus' greatest teaching, love your neighbor as yourself, and we turn it into a metaphor and don't actually love the people that Jesus says that we are to love. In the book, The Art of Neighboring, which actually is a church we looked at about five years ago, um, Jay Pathak and Dave Runyon write about how in 2009 they gathered about 20 church pastors in Denver. And they all got together because they wanted to kind of join forces to serve and love their community. And they had this meeting where they came up with this whole list of ideas, like what could we do? What could our contribution be? What is the one thing that we as a church can do together to help our city? Um, Is it at-risk kids, poor housing, child hunger, drug and alcohol dependency, loneliness, elderly shut-ins, kind of this list that you would get in any city, like the list you'd get in a city like London. And they kept on kind of talking around this issue, what is the one thing? And they'd invited the mayor of Denver, who wasn't a Christian, to this meeting. Um, And he kind of put his hand up to offer his insight. And he said that he thought the majority of the issues that the city were facing could be eliminated or at least drastically reduced if they could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. He explained that often when people identify something wrong in their neighborhoods, the first thing they would do is go to the official, go to the mayor's office and say, this is a problem, do something about it. 
But he was of the opinion that strong, ongoing community relationships were the real answer to most of these things. Because in the city of good neighbors, the elderly shut-in is known by their neighbors and looked after. The at-risk kids are known and they get mentored by people in their community. People come together to kind of clear up litter and to do community days and shovel snow and put on events where everyone is included. The mayor had to leave before the end of the meeting. And after he had left, this kind of group of 20 pastors reflected upon what the mayor had said. And one of them said to the group, am I the only one here who's a little bit embarrassed? I mean, here we are asking the mayor, how can the church serve the city? And he basically tells us, it would be great if you could just help your people follow Jesus. If you could help your people keep the second uh, commandment and love their neighbors. And so in the back of that meeting, they started this movement, which now has like over a thousand churches involved, which helps people to be intentional about loving their neighbors. And one of the first things that they do whenever they go to speak to someone about this is they ask people to fill in this next grid. It's a very simple grid. And it's just kind of your eight closest neighbors. And uh, uh, obviously in London, it's like people below you and above you as well as next door, but like eight people who live around you. And the first thing you are to do is to fill in the names of those eight people. It doesn't have to be the whole name, just kind of a name, so that if you saw them in the street, you could say, hello, whatever. Because it's kind of obvious, but if you want to love someone, it kind of helps to know their name. Then after writing down kind of these eight names, kind of a point B is they ask you to write down any information that you know about them that you've got from a conversation. So not stuff that you kind of, kind of deduce from seeing them in the street or the car they drive or what they wear to work, but from a conversation, kind of what they do, where they grew up, their hobbies, stuff like that. And then point C, they ask you to write down any in-depth information that you might know about your neighbours. The kind of stuff that you only really get from kind of a real conversation. Not the kind of stuff that you would say in like your first meeting, but like a real connection. Stuff like your hopes and your dreams or the things that you're struggling with or keep you up at night what you think about faith and God. And kind of what this exercise is designed to reveal is how many of your actual neighbours are strangers to you, that you don't even know their names, how many are acquaintances, and how many have actually moved them to becoming friends. And they say that for all the people that they have done that with, which are all Christians, they've done this in churches, all people who are trying to follow the teaching of Jesus, which includes loving their neighbours, only about 10% of the people can fill in eight names. So for the majority of people, their neighbours are strangers to them. Only 3% can fill out line B for all eight of their neighbours. So only 3% have had kind of a real conversation with their eight closest neighbours. And less than 1% can fill out line C for all of their neighbours. Like these are not closely connected. If we did that exercise now, I wonder how you would do, how I would do. How many names could you fill out? Do you know eight people that live near you? How many conversations have you had with those eight people? How many kind of real in-depth conversations have you had? I'm guessing that for many of us, that's probably not many. And so my question is, do we think that's okay? Do we think that that is a good thing? Maybe we just think, well, this is the way things are. This is London. You know, London. When we first moved to London, someone actually said this to us. They're very well-meaning, but they, we were saying, oh, we haven't kind of got to meet our neighbours yet. And they say, don't expect to meet them. Just don't expect to meet them. Like, not even don't expect to have good community with them. Don't expect to meet your neighbours. This is London. We were told that the cliche about Londoners being unfriendly was true. You just got to get used to it. 
You know, like, the tube is a metaphor for how Londoners live. Like, hundreds of people crammed in, ignoring each other, until they get in one another's way, and that's when they speak to one another. Like, that's, that's what it's like to live in London. But is it? Should it be? Should we resign ourselves to, hey, this is just the way it is? Don't you think London would be a better place to live in if people did know their neighbours, who did look out for them? If more people were intentional about turning the strangers that lived around them into at least acquaintances that they know and could help, and maybe even to friends that they care about. Don't you think that we would all feel a little less isolated, a little less lonely, a little more supported? That people could even feel less afraid if they knew the other people that they lived around. That there would be less misunderstanding, even less prejudice between people who were different to one another if they actually knew one another. And don't you think that your experience of being in London would be better if you knew and walked past your neighbours and smiled and said hi and they knew part of your life? Because Jackie and I can tell you from first-hand experience, it is better. It really is. And I don't know if we're an anomaly and we've just been very blessed with our neighbours, but we've been here for 15 years and we have had great neighbours. For the last year and a half, we've been living in, uh, renting a flat, or a house in Oval. And we moved in about the same time as a group of guys moved into their house. And one of the first things they did was invite kind of the whole of the muse to tea and cake at their house. I was like, great, we were going to do that. You've done that. Amazing. We went over and we made a WhatsApp group that Sunday. And now six out of the seven other houses in our little area are all on this WhatsApp group. We WhatsApp about loads of different stuff. We kind of collect each other's posts when they're on holiday. People have our keys. Um, We loan each other tools. The semi-retired couple who lives directly opposite our girls absolutely love. They kind of look out the window for when they're David and Alison and run out and see them. They came to the last two Christmas events we did in order to see the girls perform. We're actually going over there this afternoon because they invited all of the neighbours around for tea and cake. I mean, for Jackie's birthday last year, I was making a carrot cake, and as I came to make it, I realised I didn't have any brown sugar. And it was just me in with the girls, and so I WhatsApped the group, does anyone have any sugar they can bring over? And two people knocked on my door within five minutes to bring me sugar. I mean, that's just like the cliched, neighbourly thing to do, isn't it? Like, this is our life, it's amazing. And actually, as great as this is, it's nothing compared to the community we had in our old place. So we lived in a block of flats just behind Stockwell Tube for 10 years. Um, and we kind of moved in at the same time with a lot of our other neighbours. And it's first it's kind of saying hi in the lift um, and like being at residence association meetings together. And then it became the occasional trip to the pub, invites to parties. Uh, we started an email list for the block. We started holding keys for one another. And then over the years, as more and more of us have started having kids, we started using our shared garden more and more. And we kind of did this uh, Saturday planting and gardening day. Uh, we secured funding for a sand pit um, and a picnic bench. Someone bought a paddling pool. And in the summers, like after, every night after school, like we'd watch it around, who's in for kids' tea? And people would just bring their kids down and we'd eat together. It was amazing. Uh, we put on fireworks nights, which as a firefighter, I can say didn't comply with any kind of fire safety <laughs> regulation at all. I was embarrassed to say I was a firefighter because it was pretty dangerous. But everyone survived and we had a great time. But more than that, our neighbours became the people that we turned to for help. So when Ariana went into hospital, the person we called was Rachel, who lived underneath us. Like, can you come up and watch Olivia while we go to hospital until one of us comes back? When I'm late to pick up the girls, it's Sam that I call. It's like, can you pick the girls up? I'm late. Um, Deborah and Orlando were the neighbours with the jump leads. That's who you went to. 
Well, Seti was the person who knows how to garden, but Sam and Phil were the people with the gardening tools. Like, this is just the way it worked. And it was just so incredibly special. And it still is. Our kids still go to the same school, so we still see them all the time. We still have them over for kids' tea. I still call Sam when I'm late. Please, can you pick up the girls? And I tell you all of this not to say, hey, look at us, we are great neighbors. Because the truth is, we've fallen into this as much as we've pursued it. We've just been really fortunate to live alongside people who too have this idea of let's be neighbors in London. So I don't say this to say, hey, look at us, but I say this to say, this is possible. This can happen even in London. It is possible to become, like to know your neighbors, become acquainted with them, but actually for them to become close, to become your friends that you know and care for and they know and care for you. And I think that the more of us who pursued this, pursued real relationship, who were intentional about this, who took the words of Jesus literally, not metaphorically, to love our neighbours, the better London would be, the better this part of London or your part of London would be. That is, I think, the way that peace comes. Yes, you can work high-level strategic, and that's really important. But actually, it's a community of neighbours who know and look, one out, look out for, other, for one another. That is where really things kick off. And so, quickly before I finish, let me just share a few things in no particular order that we have found helpful in kind of getting to know our neighbours and helping kind of move this journey from stranger to friend. Firstly, and this is really not rocket science, be a friendly face around your neighbourhood. Smile at people. Say hello as you walk past them. Keep your head up as you're walking instead of looking at the ground. Even take your earbuds out. Crazy stuff. But as you see people, say hello. If you know their name, use it. Just doing this can have an incredible difference in the way that a community feels. We walk onto our old estate and we feel known because we say hi to people. And granted, this doesn't always work. Our, kind of our literal next-door neighbor, we lived next door to him for like 10 years. He still didn't know who we are. <laughs> um, if we were like both going in the door at the same time, he'd get that. Um, but we saw him on the street, like wouldn't get it. We once got into the lift together, and he looked at me and said, oh, which floor do you want? I was like, your floor. <laughs> Our floor. What do you mean, which floor? That's what I wanted to say. I was like, uh, three, thanks. <laughs> so it doesn't always work. But for a lot of people, this doesn't make a huge difference. And then secondly, introduce yourself where, whenever you can. Find out people's names. And if you need to, write it down. I am so bad with names. So when we first moved to our block, I made like a map of the block of flats and stuck on our fridge. And as I found out people's names, we'd like write them down. Because that's the only way that I could remember. Sounds a little creepy, I know. But like sometimes you have to be super intentional. And we all know how special it is when someone we kind of know remembers our name. Oh, that, there's like almost an instant connection. You know me. Like, it's a really simple thing. And you may have been living around your neighbours for years and years and years. Introduce yourself anyway. Like, it's going to be awkward for both of you. Like, you both kind of know who you are, and you know that you don't know each other's names. So just, you be brave. Take the step. Hey, I know we haven't actually spoken. I'm Tim. Like, it's really simple, but I think very, very effective. Um, when people move in, this is a great time to do this. Although, again, it doesn't always work. A um, couple moved into the end of our corridor. And I thought, I will make them a curry from scratch as a welcome to the neighborhood. And so I did that, and I walked over, knocked on the door, said, hey, I'm Tim, I'm your neighbor, welcome. Just thought it might be nice to have a, like, a home-cooked meal your first night. And they looked at it and said, no thanks, and shut the door. 
they didn't even take it in and pretend to eat it. They just said, no, thank you. I was like, oh, okay. I'll eat curry tonight then. So it doesn't always work, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Um, a third great way to start connecting with people, start a WhatsApp group or an email chain. Um, so Rachel, who's our downstairs neighbor, like the beating heart of our old block, she did this. She created a Jones list. She put up kind of a post in the lift, said, if you want to be kind of kept informed of all things Code Corti, sign up to this list. And hey, presto, dozens of people now connected, which you could invite to stuff and tell like, what's going on and all complain about landlords together. Um, number four, invite people to something. People do want to come. We often think they don't, but they will come if you invite them. Could be a birthday party, could be Christmas drinks, could be a summer barbecue. Why not even do a street party? Um, so the great get-together um, is uh, started a couple of years because um, Joe Cox was murdered, and her big thing, her first speech in Parliament was there's more th things that we have together than divide us. And so kind of in her memory, there's been this thing the last few years of doing street parties. And so my sister, who lives in Lewisham, she decided with uh, one of her closest neighbors, who's actually one of her best friends, said, well, well, let's do this. We've never done this before. Let's do this. And it took a bit of work. They had to call the council to shut off the road. They made flyers. They went door to door of every single house on their street, um, asking people to bring food along. But they ended up on the day with dozens of houses coming out and about 50 people. And these are neighbors who probably had seen each other but never actually talked to one another before. And here they are. And it was just because two women thought, we could probably do this. And actually, everyone was like, this is an amazing thing to do. I just didn't want to organize it. But if someone else does, I'm there. I mean, we could be the people who organize it. Or at the very least, we could be the people that say yes. Because that's just as important going along. Or if a kind of a straight social thing isn't kind of your bag... Try some kind of community action thing. Work towards some common goal together. This is an amazing way to meet your neighbors and kind of do positive things together. So get involved with your local tenants association or residents association or neighborhood watch. Join one of the dozen friends of such and such park that are all around this area. Parents, I would say get involved in your PTA, your parents and teachers association. This has been a great way for us to meet our kind of our school neighbors. Um, just last week, I was part of a parents group that put on our first ever Eid festival at our school. But like probably 50% of our kids are Muslim. We've never done an Eid festival before. Um, and after the attacks in New Zealand, a few of us, part of the PTA, thought it would be great if we could actually do something for the Muslim parents who are often, like for whatever reason, haven't got involved in school life. And so we, like again, Rachel, you need to find your Rachel basically. <laughs> Like, and piggyback on what they do. She like, organized like, a whole dozens of Muslim parents, and they made all this food, and we set up kind of the two halls, and we put up balloons, and we taught kids about Eid. And they, like, they were amazed that we had done this. Like, white British Christian people involved in their life. Like, we want to love you and serve you and value you. Let's do this together. And now we have a whole bunch of Muslim parents who, at best before, were people we smiled at in the playground. And now we've done something, we've worked together. And there are loads of different things you can do just to kind of work together for the good of your community. Uh, number six, decide to become a regular somewhere. Choose a cafe, uh, a pub, a restaurant, a playground, a nature garden, and make it a regular spot for you. Decide we will go there regular and often, and we will chat to people who come there too. It's amazing. We love the nature gardens. That's why we started a connect group there. Like when we lived in our old flat, we were down there kind of all the time. It was like our backyard. And we have met loads of people because we are there regularly and other people are there regularly. 
But it happens in cafes and pubs as well. So just, I mean, I would say this anyway, shop local, like go out local, give your money into local businesses, but also do that and you will meet people. Um, Jack's, uh, which is um, a coffee and an ice cream place just over the road. Amazing thing. So I don't know how long you guys have been in Stockwell, but we used to have Jack's Supermarket, which was a little run down and is now kind of a Sainsbury's. And like you think, oh, this is part of the kind of pros and cons of gentrification. Like I think most of us are winners in that thing and that's a whole other conversation. But anyway, like Jack's disappeared and then like a few years later, Jack's the coffee shop popped up and it was Jack's the guy, his daughter, who now runs that. And this is amazing. She's been around for ages in this community. And they do amazing gelato. So we are there like Fridays after school in the summer. That is where we go. And again, just but choose a regular place and like you will get to know people doing that. And then lastly, and I think this is really important as well, look for opportunities to ask for help, not just give help. Like we don't want our neighbours to be a project. We are not like, we are here to save you with our amazing neighbourliness. Like, we are here to build community, to be part of something amazing. And that will involve us being vulnerable. And it's an amazing thing to kind of model vulnerability with your neighbours. Remember the first time we gave our keys to one of our neighbours said, oh, like, a friend's coming around later, we're out, could you hold our keys? And he's like, what? Don't you think I'm going to rob it? Like, that was his view. Like, people rob other people's houses. They don't give their keys. Like, no, we are in need. It would really help us out. Can you hold our keys? Like showing that you don't have all the answers, showing that you aren't kind of the, the whole package and everything is fine, showing that you need jump leads when you accidentally leave the lights on in your car, and like you don't have the tools that you need. It's so, so important to show we are in this together. This is us together. This is not me come to save you. This is us together building a community. And so asking for help is an amazing way to take your relationship on because it shows vulnerability, it shows trust. It shows that you want something more out of this relationship and actually you want to take something out of this relationship and that will definitely increase the sense of community. So those are just a few things that we have found. And like I say, we aren't in any way experts. Like life gets tough and like it's hard to be intentional the whole time and sometimes you just want to go home and like shut the world out. But in our best of moments, we think, no, we really want to do this. We believe in this. Like we want to be part of an amazing community of neighbours who know one another, especially in a place like London. 300 languages spoken here. But uh, between a 10-year period, 3.8 million people moved into London, 3.4 million moved out. Like This is a transitory place. But for those of us who are like, well, we're going to be here for a little bit longer, we can be the glue. We can be kind of the glue that holds a neighbourhood together, but we have to be intentional. But the amazing thing is... Jesus says, do it, and if Jesus says, do it, he's going to give us the power to do it. He's going to give us what we need to do it. And so that is my encouragement to us this morning. Think about this. Think about what it means to be a good neighbor. And I would say just, like, what is the next one step that you can do? Like, we're not all going to, like, do a street party. Actually, um, the great get-together is next weekend, FYI. I doubt any of us are going to organize a street party. But there are two happening, one in Vauxhall, one in Kennington, that you can just turn up to. So that, that could be your first thing. Hey, we'll go to that. Just look on their website. But what is the one thing? Maybe it is, okay, this week, I'm going to find out the name of one of my neighbors. Or that person that I know I want to have a real conversation with. Like, we are on a journey together. And I say this all the time. I love this about the Christian faith. One degree of glory to the next. That is what we're, our trajectory. One step at a time. What is the next step for us, for you, in becoming great neighbors? Maybe I could have the band back, Peter.
So I'm going to leave that with you. Think about that. Maybe chat. Chat to your partner, chat to your friends. What is the one thing that you can do? But right now, we are going to stand and we're going to worship. And we're going to remember that actually all of this is possible because this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus left the comfort of heaven where everything was fine and he came to people very, very unlike him. He came to people that actually considered him a bit of an enemy. And he said, I'm not going to settle for that. I'm going to break down those awkward barriers and I'm going to do what it takes in order to make these enemies into my friends. And so we are going to worship together about that God. Why don't we stand and let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are the good neighbor. You are the good Samaritan. You are the one that has come to us. You are the one that loves us extravagantly, loves us with so much compassion, so much courage. And we want to listen to your words this morning. You tell us we are to be good neighbors, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I pray that you would help us to do that. When it's tough, when we're busy, when there's loads of other stuff going on, Lord, I pray that we would prioritize in whatever way that looks like for us, just loving the people that you have put around us. And yeah, in a place of London, people very different to us often. But I pray that we would learn how to do this. And we do pray that that's, this would bring peace to this great city. I mean, just even thinking this week of the stabbings that have happened in this part of London. There's so much turmoil and so much division and so much violence. And it seems crazy that being good neighbors could do something about that. But we trust that it does because that's what you say. The foundation of a society of peace is neighbors who love one another. I pray you would help us to do that in your mighty name. Amen.